I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles again to John 5. We were there a little bit earlier, and that's where we're going to be again for the sermon. John 5, verses 1 to 18. And we all know that Jesus said and did a lot of things that people liked. Right? Crowds of people followed Jesus around, even in his own day. And today, there are still lots of people who have positive things about Je- to say about Jesus. Not just Christians, right? but lots of people have positive things to say about Jesus, whether they actually believe in him or follow him or not. And so if he was so popular in his own day and remains popular today, why was he killed? How did he end up on a Roman cross after healing people and teaching people to forgive and turn the other cheek? There were other things, of course, that Jesus said and did that people did not like or did not believe. In John 6, the crowd that was following Jesus left him. Because his teaching was too hard for them to accept. Thomas Jefferson, who's rightly famous, right, because he was one of the brilliant founding fathers of our country, he's also rightly infamous for creating his own version of the New Testament by cutting out Jesus' miracles, including the resurrection of Jesus. Many people like Jesus, or like some things about Jesus, but they don't believe in him, and they do the same thing as Thomas Jefferson did, even if they don't take a knife to the pages of their Bible, they dismiss, mentally cut out the things that Jesus said and the things that Jesus did that they don't approve of, don't like, that rub them the wrong way. Many people think Jesus was good, but not God. But if we pay attention to Jesus, he won't let us have it both ways. He can't be good, but not be God. If he's good, he's God. If he's not God, he's not good. Because he claimed to be God. And if that's not true, there's nothing else he said that you need to listen to. But if that is true, we need to listen to and believe every single thing he said. Now, I start that way because that is what is at the heart of the miracle that John records for us in John chapter 5. Uh, Jesus is uh, returning to Jerusalem once again at the time of a feast. This is not his first trip to Jerusalem in the Gospel of John. And he's going to Jerusalem once again. And this time when he goes to Jerusalem, he makes a stop at a place called Bethesda where there is a pool. And at this pool, John tells us that there are five roofed colonnades. Now, you don't talk about colonnades very often. Basically, what this means is there are some covered areas there where people could be protected from the sun and from the other elements, right? And so, there are people crowded around this pool under these 
five roofed areas, not because they just wanted to, you know, get away and enjoy a, a day at the pool and relax. But at this pool, there was a crowd of people that verse 3 describes as invalids, those who were blind, lame, and paralyzed. This is a place that people came who wanted and needed to be healed. And there was a particular man there that Jesus uh, interacted with, verse 5 says, had uh, been an invalid for 38 years. I just want you to, to try for just a moment to, to put yourself in this man's shoes. What would it be like to be an invalid for 38 years? That's a long time. And Jesus saw him, verse 6 says, saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time. This is not this man's first day at the pool. right? He'd been at this place for a long time, and Jesus knew that. Now, why was this man at this pool, and why, were, why was there a crowd of people coming to this particular place? Well, here we run into a bit of a difficulty, and you might have already picked up on it. Because there's a verse, verse 4, that is probably not in your Bible, unless you have an older version, King James Version, you probably have it. Some others might as well. Uh, in my Bible, it's, it's been put in a footnote down at the bottom of the page, but it's not in the main text. right? And if you don't have it in the main text, let me read it for you so you can hear what it says. Right? It actually adds to the end of verse 3 where it says they were waiting for the moving of the water... And then verse 4 says, For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. Now here's what's difficult about that. It's not in most of our modern versions of the Bible because that verse is not in the oldest copies of the Gospel of John that we have. Right, so most scholars say they don't, they don't think verse 4 was actually written by John. They think that it was added in later by somebody else as an explanation, and then it sort of made its way into our Bibles over time. And then as we you know, discovered older manuscripts of the Gospel of John, they looked and said, well, that, that verse is not in there. So we shouldn't put it in there. But it's helpful for us because it does explain why these people are here And it's going to help explain why the man uh, responds to Jesus the way he does in just a moment. Now, whether that verse belongs in the Bible or not is ultimately not really that important, right? Um, And this is not the only place where we run into a difficulty like that. In fact, we run into the same thing in John chapter 8. And if you want to know more about how scholars decide those things and how that works, I'd be happy to explain it and talk about it and whatever. But I I didn't figure you wanted me to spend 15 minutes on that in the sermon. So that's the short answer of why you may have that in your Bible, but you may not. So uh, whether or not it was true, what verse 4 says, if it's not part of the Bible, it may or may not be true, right? Whether or not it's true, that's why the people were there. Right? Whether or not the angel actually came down and stirred the water, and if you got in it, you were healed, or whether that's what, just what people believed, that's why they were there. And this man is there, 
And you would assume that since he's there, he wants to be healed. Right? Why else would he be there? But Jesus says to him in verse 6, Do you want to be healed? Now, why does Jesus ask him that question? It seems like a really obvious question. Well, Jesus does not ask because he doesn't know. Right? As, as uh, my pastor used to say, Jesus never asks questions for information. Right? He, he knows. Why does Jesus ask questions? He asks questions to draw people out. He asks questions to test people. He asks questions as a, as a sort of invitation. I think here, Jesus is both offering an invitation and giving the man a test. He's offering an invitation because Jesus is able to heal this man. And so by saying, do you want to be healed? Jesus is opening the door for this man to ask Jesus for healing. It's very similar to when Jesus sat down at the well in Samaria and said to the woman, give me a drink. He didn't say that just because he was thirsty. He said that because he wanted her to start talking to him so that he could offer her living water. Jesus begins the conversation with this man because he wants to heal him. But there's also a test involved, I think, because not everyone really wants what they think they want. Right? For example, like you could complain about your job and how hard it is and how, wish, how you wish you could retire early. Right? But if somebody walked up to you and said, hey, we're giving you early retirement, 15, 20 years early. But here's the deal. You can never work another job again if you take it. Maybe I like work more than I thought I did. Maybe I don't really want to retire. I don't know. Does this man really want to be healed? Probably. We would assume. right? But Jesus is testing him. Jesus is asking him. And, and here's why this question is important, not just for that man, but for us. It's a test for us as well, because every time Jesus heals somebody, it's not just about Jesus healing their physical ailment, whatever it may be, opening the eyes of the blind, right? raising the dead. Every time Jesus does that, he is also showing us that he is able to heal and restore in more deep and profound ways. Because the worst thing that's wrong with us is not whatever physical ailments we have. Right? Our biggest problem is, is not financial, it's not physical. Our biggest problems are spiritual. Right? And Jesus came not mainly to heal people physically, but to deliver them from sin, to heal them from the curse, the consequences of their sin, to forgive them and make them new, make us clean. And so here's Jesus' question to us. Do you want to be healed? Do you really? Think about if, if perhaps you're not a Christian, right? And you're kind of sort of checking Jesus out, checking out the church, 
and you're, you're recognizing you need something, you can't quite put your finger on what it is, you know something's wrong, you know there's something more, whatever it is, and you think you want whatever it is Jesus is offering, but you haven't quite figured out what it is yet. Here's what he's offering. He's offering you new life. He's offering you forgiveness. He's offering you reconciliation with God. He's offering to make you a new creation, to set you free from the sin that is enslaving you. His question to you is simply, do you want it? Do you want to be new? Do you want to be free? Do you want to be healed? If you do, all you have to do is turn to Him and believe. All you have to do is call on His name. The Bible says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you just say, Jesus, make me new. Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, I need you. He will. But that question is not just for those who aren't yet Christians. It's also for all of us who are Christians. If there's a particular sin that you're struggling with, trying to overcome, feel captive to, do you really want to be free from that? And I'm not saying if you struggle with a sin, it's because you don't really want to be free. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, so, St. Augustine, one of the things, he, he's famous for saying a lot of things, and one of the things he's famous for saying is, Lord, give me chastity, purity, but not yet. Sometimes, if we're honest, the sins, the struggles that we complain about, wrestle with, we don't actually want to be free from yet. We think that we do, but maybe we don't. Jesus' question to us then is, do you really want to be free? Now, I'm not saying if you decide, yes, you want to be free, that Jesus will automatically deliver to you. You'll never struggle with that sin again. That's not at all what I'm saying. I'm just saying sometimes, not every time, not saying if you're struggling, it's because you don't want to be free. Sometimes the reason we keep struggling with something is because we don't yet want to be free of it. We haven't really asked Jesus to help us, to heal us, sometimes. So do you really want to be free from that? Do you want to be changed? Do you want to be new? Jesus can do that for you. It may take time. Sometimes it's dramatic and instantaneous, and that's great. Most of the time it's not. But whether it's instantaneous or not, Jesus can heal you. Jesus can set you free. Jesus does that for this man. In this case, it is instantaneous. Verse 7, the man answers him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. This man's trying to explain why he hasn't yet been healed. I'm here because I want to be healed, but I can't be healed because I don't have anybody to help me get into the water. Somebody always beats me to it and... They get the healing instead of me. So Jesus says to him, in effect, all right, I'll take care of that. Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And it says that once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. All he had to do was say it. Healed him with a word. Only God can do that. Now, 
so far, this is a pretty simple, straightforward story about Jesus healing somebody, right? But at the end of verse 9, John throws a wrench in it. He's held back a piece of information until now, and that piece of information is this. Now that day was the Sabbath, and that was a problem. Why is that a problem? Why is it significant that Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath? Well, people get upset about Jesus doing this on the Sabbath. The Jews start questioning the man. Actually, they they say to the man, Hey, it's the Sabbath. You can't pick up your bed and walk. That's against the law. And the man says, Hey, I've been an invalid for 38 years and somebody just healed me. Guess what? He said I could take up my bed and walk, so that's why I'm doing it. I mean, he, you know, he just changed my life. He can tell me to do whatever he wants. right? I, I'm going to do it. I'm going to listen to him and not to you. That's, I'm you know, paraphrasing and adding some color there, obviously. <laughs> but that's what happened, right? So they want to know, okay, well, who is this guy then? Who healed you and told you to take up your bed and walk? And the guy says, I don't know. Jesus healed him and then slipped away into the crowd. The man doesn't know who it was. Later, Jesus finds the man and tells him, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you, which does not mean that the reason the man was an invalid was because he sinned. It's just Jesus saying, hey, there's something worse than being an invalid for 38 years. And if you keep sinning, you're going to experience that. So sin no more so that nothing worse may happen to you. And then the man goes and tells the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. I don't know why he does that. It seems like he's... uh, not really repaying Jesus well for his kindness, right? But that's, that's what he does. That's what happens. And so these people are all up in arms about Jesus doing this. Verse 16 says, This was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now, why are they so upset about Jesus healing this man on the Sabbath? Why are they so mad that this man's carrying his bed on the Sabbath? Why are they making such a big deal out of this? Well, in one sense, it was a big deal. The fourth of the Ten Commandments told the Jews to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you work, one day you don't work. You rest. That's the Sabbath. God told them in that commandment, On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. So here's the question. Is healing work? They clearly thought it was. Or at least some people did. Um, Did they think carrying his bed was work? They clearly did. Are they right or are they wrong? That's the question. Right? Now, we've got a commandment about this, but I mean... How big a deal is it if somebody breaks this commandment? Is it a big deal? Is it this big of a deal? It was. In Exodus 35, verse 2, God says, Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. 
That doesn't seem like they're overreacting, does it? Did that ever happen, though? Like, was anybody actually ever put to death for breaking the Sabbath? Yeah. Yeah, somebody was. In the book of Numbers, chapter 15, you can go read the story. A man was gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. They basically, like, arrested him, asked God, what should we do? And they were told, stone him to death. He broke the Sabbath. So, the Sabbath was a big deal. Right? And God is the one who told them not to do work on the Sabbath. And so these guys who are upset about this man carrying his bed and this healing that went on and all that, you can see where they're coming from. Right? You can understand why they would have thought that. But Jesus repeatedly did things on the Sabbath that other people thought he shouldn't do. Why? When Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath and told him to pick up his bed and walk, Jesus didn't then go, ooh, I forgot it was the Sabbath. (laughs) He knew what he was doing. And this wasn't the only time he did it. One time, he was in the synagogue on the Sabbath, and there was a man there with a withered hand. And so, Mark Chapter 3 is where this story is found. Mark tells us in Mark 3 that Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, the people in the synagogue, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? He's testing them. He's provoking them. Before I do this, I want to know your opinion. Is it lawful for me to do what I'm about to do or not? But they wouldn't answer him. Mark says, but they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Hardness of heart? Aren't they just trying to keep the law? Why does Jesus think that they have hard hearts? Matthew tells us a similar story in his gospel in Matthew chapter 12. But he adds this, Jesus said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. What's going on in all of this? What is Jesus up to? What is he trying to show them? What is he teaching us? He's showing them that the way they handled and interpreted and applied the law was wrong. They thought they were trying to keep the law. They thought they were trying to honor God by honoring the Sabbath. But they were hypocritical about it. They would break the Sabbath for the sake of one of their valuable possessions, a sheep. But they got mad if somebody broke the Sabbath to heal a human person who'd been sick or hurting or whatever for substantial length of time. That makes no sense. It's not consistent. It's not faithful. Now, I believe that Christians are no longer required to keep the Sabbath. And I've 
talked about that multiple times, so we won't go over that ground again today. We should gather for worship, ideally on Sunday. The Bible's plain about that. But when I say I don't believe that Christians are required to keep the Sabbath, I mean I don't think there's a particular day of the week where we are not allowed to work, where we're not supposed to do any work at all. In other words, if you want to go home this afternoon and mow your yard, though it's blazing hot, you can do that if you want to, but I don't think you're sinning. Right? Or if you've got to go to work later today, I don't think you're sinning if you have to work on the Sabbath. That commandment does not apply to us anymore in the New Covenant. But there is something we can learn about the commandments that do still apply to us from the way that Jesus handles the Sabbath commandment and the way that he engages those who think he and those he heals uh, you know, both or, or one or the other, are breaking the law. Here's what we can understand from what Jesus is teaching here and what he's doing here. All right, those who thought it was a sin for Jesus to heal on the Sabbath, here's what was wrong. They did not understand the law, and they did not understand the God who gave it. Those are two big problems. Here's what I mean when I say they did not understand the law. Jesus wasn't actually breaking the Sabbath. The way they were understanding and applying the law itself was wrong. Jesus says elsewhere in Mark chapter 2, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. They didn't even get what the commandment was for, how it was supposed to work. They misunderstood the law itself. And the reason, I think, they misunderstood the law itself is because they misunderstood the God who gave it. Let me tell you why I think that's the case. When did God give Israel the Ten Commandments? He gave them the Ten Commandments right after the Exodus, right? He just brought them out of slavery in Egypt where they were under Pharaoh, right? And then he brings them to Mount Sinai and there he gives them the Ten Commandments. Did God deliver them from oppression under Pharaoh in order to put them under a new oppression under the law? Of course not. God just rescued them. God just delivered them. So when he gave them the commandment not to work on the Sabbath, did he give them that commandment in order to enslave and oppress them under some new heavy burden? No. But that's what the Pharisees and others turned the law into. A heavy burden that no one could carry. Remember, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for this. They put burdens on people's backs that were too heavy to carry, but they wouldn't lift a finger to help them. And they did that in part by adding to the law that God had given extra rules like no working on the Sabbath means you can't carry your mat home, you can't heal somebody, you can't do this, you can't do that. 
Because they didn't understand the law and they didn't understand the God who gave it. When Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, what he's saying is the God who rescued you from oppression in Egypt gave you the law not to oppress you, but to bless you. And if the way someone is applying the law to your life is oppressive and not a blessing, they're not handling it correctly. So we need to think about how we handle God's commandments. How we view God's commandments for ourselves and how we use them when we apply them to others. Are we understanding, interpreting, applying those commands as commands that come from a God who loves us and wants what's best for us and wants us to be free and flourish Or are we interpreting and understanding and applying those commands as though they come from a God who is primarily angry at us and wants to, you know, steal our joy and make our life hard? We might not ever say it that way, but a lot of times when we read the Bible, especially the commands, the imperatives, the do this, the don't do that, we think of it as coming from someone who's mad. Someone who's trying to make things hard. But that's not true. Even the Ten Commandments, right? They were given in the wake of salvation, in the wake of redemption, in the wake of deliverance. How much more so... Does anything that God tells us that we should do now as followers of Christ come to us right through the knowledge that God has saved us, loved us, rescued us, sought to bless us? So we need to be careful how we understand and interpret those things. Finally, what is Jesus doing here? healing this man on the Sabbath, telling him to walk on the Sabbath. What is it that Jesus wants the people in this situation to understand that they are missing? Here, it's something even more significant than how we understand the law. But it does have to do with how we understand God. Because here's what Jesus says in verse 17. It says, Jesus answered them, Because he knows they don't like him doing this stuff on the Sabbath. Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Now they knew what he meant when he said that. It might not dawn on us immediately what he meant, but they understood. Because verse 18 says, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath... But he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus was claiming in no uncertain terms that he was equal with God. Some people will say, well, Jesus never actually claimed to be God. That's just something that, you know, sort of, There are people who followed Jesus, they liked Jesus, and then just sort of over time it kind of grew into this worship Jesus as God thing, but Jesus never endorsed that. Jesus never claimed that. Yes, he did. 
Yes, he did. Jesus claimed to be God. When he said, my father is working until now and I am working, what he's saying is, yes, God rested on the seventh day after creation. But he's not inactive. He's not on a permanent Sabbath, as it were. God is working. He's saving. He's speaking. He's listening to prayers and answering prayers. He's sustaining the universe. And Jesus says, I'm working too. Now, the reason why the Jews knew that what Jesus was doing there was claiming to be equal with God is because of this. If you said to someone, you're breaking the Sabbath. You're not allowed to do that. And they said, well, God breaks the Sabbath. So why can't I break the Sabbath? He would say, that's blasphemy, man. You're you're claiming to be equal with God. Just because God can do something doesn't mean you can do it. You think you're equal with God? That's what Jesus is saying. That's why they're so mad. They think Jesus is blaspheming because they know he's claiming to be equal with God. But he's not blaspheming because he is equal with God. That's what John has been telling us from the very beginning of this gospel. That Jesus is the eternal Son of God, the eternal Word of God, who took on human flesh and dwelt among us. And the things that Jesus is doing, and in this instance, even the way he is doing them, is in order to show us who he is. I can work on the Sabbath because God works on the Sabbath because I'm God in the flesh. I can heal this man who clearly nobody else has been able to heal. He's been an invalid for 38 years. I can do what no one else can do. Why? Because I am God. There are only two ways you can respond to that. You can reject that and reject Jesus, or you can receive that and you can worship Him. It's the only two options. Jesus is a good guy who did good things, but he's not God, is not an option on the table. Jesus doesn't allow us to have that option. Because he tells us that the reason he's doing the things he's doing, the reason he's able to do the things he's doing, is because of who he is. And we can't separate who he is from what he does or what he says. If you like his teaching, if you're impressed with his miracles, you need to know the only kind of person who can say those things and the only kind of person who can do those things is the kind of person who's unlike any other person because he's the one and only God-man. Now, Thomas Jefferson liked some things Jesus said, but he didn't really like Jesus, not the real one. Lots of people think they like Jesus because they like some things he said, some things he did. But John wants us to see the real Jesus. Not the Jesus we've kind of picked and chosen, you know, this part we like, that part we don't, make our own sort of picture of Jesus in our heads. John is trying to blow all that out of the water. Here's who he really is. 
John says. And the good news is, though many have rejected him, John said in the opening lines of the gospel, many did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. If you believe him, you'll be yours. You'll be his, excuse me, and you'll be new. Let's pray.